Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet them, greet them, treat them, and street them. Today's date is June 15th, 2023, and I am your skeptical host, Dennis Wren. The title of today's podcast is Homeward Bound. After a dose of intranasal fentanyl for sickle cell vaso-occlusive pain. Our guest skeptic today is Dr. Amy Drendel, who is a pediatric emergency medicine physician and physician scientist at Children's Wisconsin. She is a professor of pediatrics and the interim chief of the section of pediatric emergency medicine at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Her research interests include optimizing pain treatment in children, and she has been a principal investigator and co-investigator on multiple collaborative grants evaluating effectiveness of analgesia for children. Dr. Drendel, welcome to SGMPEDS. So good to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Well, I'm excited to just jump right in because we have a very, very interesting paper to talk about, and I understand you brought us a case. We have a 14-year-old male with sickle cell disease who presents to your emergency department with a vaso-occlusive pain episode of his bilateral legs and back. He tells you that he has had similar pain with previous vaso-occlusive pain episodes. But his sister is graduating from high school tomorrow, and he really hopes he can get home so he can attend graduation. He denies any fever or difficulty breathing. And on your examination, he appears uncomfortable with tenderness to palpation of bilateral shins in his lower back. The rest of his exam is unremarkable. And as you begin ordering the blood work and the dose of IV morphine, his nurse says to you, he looks pretty uncomfortable, Do you want to give him a dose of intranasal fentanyl while we're waiting for that IV? Now, children feel pain, believe it or not, and it is often undertreated. There are a lot of options out there to treat pediatric pain that's both pharmacologic, like analgesia, NSAIDs, nerve blocks, sub-dissociative dose of ketamine and opioids, and there's also many non-pharmacologic strategies as well, including distraction, music, or splinting if uh, the child has a fracture. Children with sickle cell disease presenting to the ED with vaso-occlusive pain episodes require timely and effective pain control. Opioids are the primary therapy, and the National Heart and Lung Blood Institute released an expert panel report in 2014 with evidence-based guidelines for the management of sickle cell disease. They recommend timely administration of parental opioids for vaso-occlusive pain episodes. However, there's multiple barriers, including ED crowding, boarding, staff shortages, you name it. These all contribute to delays in care. Oh, man, all those things really hit close to home. And fortunately, intranasal fentanyl has been shown to be used safely to treat pain in pediatric patients, and it does offer a way for us to deliver analgesia without IV access. And we've covered the use of intranasal fentanyl in children before in SGM 123 and SGM 242. So Dr. Drendel, what is the clinical question that we are asking today? How does intranasal fentanyl for the treatment of vaso-occlusive pain episodes in children with sickle cell disease impact disposition? And what's our reference? Reyes et al., intranasal fentanyl and discharge from the emergency department among children with sickle cell disease in vaso-occlusive pain, a multi-center pediatric emergency medicine perspective, American Journal of Hematology, January 2023. 
All right, let's move on to our PICO questions. What was the population they included in this study? There were children ages 3 to 21 years of age with sickle cell disease, both hemoglobin SS disease or hemoglobin sickle beta thalassemia, who presented with vasoclusive pain episodes to the emergency department. And who did they exclude? Children with upper respiratory infections, those with concerns for stroke or altered mental status, a head injury, or any concerns around acute chest. And the intervention? Intranasal fentanyl, 50 micrograms per milliliter, delivered via an atomizer with maximum dosing of 100 micrograms. And their comparison? No intranasal fentanyl administration. Okay, let's take a look at the outcomes now. What was the primary outcome? Primary outcome was discharge home from the emergency department. And they had a couple secondary outcomes, right? What were, what were those? Yes, they looked at dose and route of opioids administered, the time of opioid administration, use of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug administered, use of IV fluids, time of ED or triage arrival to first opioid administration, and time of day that the patient presented to the emergency department. What type of study was this? This is a secondary analysis of a cross-sectional study from 20 academic pediatric emergency departments in the United States and Canada. And can you give us the author's conclusions? Children with sickle cell disease who received intranasal fentanyl for vasoclusive pain episodes had a greater odds of being discharged from the emergency department than those who did not receive it. Ooh, that's a bold claim. I'm... Very, very excited to deep dive into this a little bit later. But before we jump ahead, let's talk about the quality checklist for this study. First question, did the study address a clearly focused issue? Yes, it did. Did the authors use an appropriate method to answer their question? Unsure. Do you think the cohort was recruited in an acceptable way? Yes, it was. Was the exposure accurately measured to minimize bias? Yes. And what about the outcome? Was that accurately measured to minimize bias? Yes. Do you think the authors identified all the important confounding factors? I'm going to give the usual answer here. Unsure. Okay. And was the follow-up of subjects complete enough? Yes, it was. How precise do you think the results are? Unsure. Do you believe the results? Unsure. And can the results be applied to the local population? Unsure. Well, it's a lot of unsures. All right, let's round it out. Do the findings of this study fit with the other available evidence? Yes, they do. And the last question, were there any conflicts of interest in the funding of the study? No financial conflicts of interest were found. Let's go on to the results. So they included 400 patients, 54% were female, the median age was 14.6 years, most patients, 92%, had hemoglobin SS disease, while the other 8% had hemoglobin beta thalassemia. The overall rate of admission was 67%, and 19% of these patients received intranasal fentanyl. Amy, what was the key result? Intranasal fentanyl administration for vasoocclusive pain episodes in children with sickle cell disease was associated with a greater odds of discharge from the emergency department compared to those who did not receive it. 
Mm, but how great were the odds? Well, the odds ratio that was reported was 8.99, but that 95% confidence interval stretched from 2.8 all the way up to 30.5. But I'm getting, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Uh, are you ready for my favorite, favorite section of the show? Are you ready to talk nerdy? Let's do it. Nerdy point number one is about selection bias. Now, when I initially saw the number of patients in the study, I was drawn to it. It's such a nice round 400. This is because the authors had investigators from the 20 sites review the charts of 20 consecutive children. So 20 times 20 is a nice 400. And the authors write the annual volume of patients with sickle cell disease and vaso-occlusive pain episodes at these emergency departments ranged all the way from 80 to 700. So how were these 20 patients selected out of all of those visits? And do they actually accurately represent the overall population that sought care? We are not really sure. Additionally, we do not have a detailed breakdown of the patient population by pain scores. So the author mentioned that there was no difference in mean change in pain scores among children who received intranasal fentanyl, who had a mean change of about 2.2, compared to those who did not, who had a mean change of about 2.5 reduction. They also found that children presenting with lower pain scores, larger reduction in pain scores, and lower overall morphine-equivalent doses of opioid had higher odds of ED discharge. These two points may mean that the patients who received intranasal fentanyl potentially had less severe pain, or the children with lower pain scores may have received intranasal fentanyl preferentially. Hmm, very interesting. And so for these next few nerdy points, we're going to talk about some of the key confounding factors that we noticed in this study. So the second nerdy point is about the timing and dose of opioid administration. So children who received intranasal fentanyl received their first dose of parenteral opioid significantly faster compared to children who did not. The authors looked at parenteral opioid administration in 30 minutes or less after presentation to the ED and 60 minutes or less after presentation to the ED. Now, the time to administration of the parenteral opioid pain medication is a metric that is tracked in the emergency department for patients with sickle cell disease and an important factor in pain control. So it's possible that the faster administration of opioid therapy in general plays a bigger role in the ability to discharge a sickle cell patient with vasoclusive pain episode than simply just the administration of intranasal fentanyl. The multivariable analysis did not find that timeliness of opioid administration was associated with a decreased odds of hospital admission, which goes against this theory. However, based on best practice and in alignment with the NHLBI recommendations, the more rapidly that pain treatment can be initiated for these kids, the better. And children who received intranasal fentanyl received higher overall total parenteral opioid morphine equivalents, and that was 0.36 compared to the children who did not, which was 0.22 milligrams per kilogram. So we're not sure if this also confounded the results, but I totally agree. Ensuring adequate analgesia is important in the treatment of vaso-occlusive pain episodes in our patients with sickle cell disease. 
Our third nerdy point is about the admission criteria. Yeah, so overall hospital admission rates were 67% and ranged from 45 to 90%. That's quite a bit of variability across these sites, and it does make us wonder if there's something about the patients or the treatments or differences in practices at the different sites that might ex- explain some of the variability that we're seeing. Intranasal fentanyl administration was still significantly associated with discharge, even accounting for pain scores and opioid administration. Further, when the analysis includes only sites that administer intranasal fentanyl, the association was even stronger. Very, very interesting. Definitely agree with that. So the next nerdy point is about the additional treatments, and I was a little bit confused on how to interpret these as well. So almost 70% of patients who were admitted received a bolus of IV fluids compared to approximately 57% of patients who were discharged. Now, previous studies in this population have suggested that receiving IV fluid boluses of normal saline may be associated with worsening pain in vaso-occlusive episodes and volume overload. So it's unclear to me how this practice also contributed to the results. Yes, and knowing the variability in admissions, it makes you wonder if there's a guideline or a practice at sites with higher admission rates that supports administration of a bolus. Or is the IV bolus just an indicator of pain severity? Now, the authors found that administration of oral opioids was associated with increased odds of discharge from the ED as well. And this was a little bit weird because I don't typically give sickle cell patients with vasoclusive pain episodes oral opioids in our emergency department. And again, we're not sure why this happened. Did these patients receive oral opioids in the ED because difficulty with IV access or maybe they did not take their oral opioid at home prior to presentation. It's just unclear. And we also don't have any information about what other medication these patients received prior to arriving in the emergency department. I know at our site, we would not start with an oral opioid because most of our patients present after failing home oral opioid treatment. Perhaps these patients did not trial an oral opioid at home, or maybe this is an indicator of lower pain severity. We'd like to know what the initial pain scores were for those patients receiving an oral opioid to support that theory, but that wasn't available. Our fifth and final nerdy point is about the generalizability of this study. Now, this study had 15 out of 20 sites who had the ability to administer intranasal fentanyl, but out of those 15 sites, only 10 actually administered it. Now, this begs the question of, well, why? Was the use of intranasal fentanyl simply not part of that institutional culture or a standardized pathway for treating vasoclusive pain episodes? Or is it because the patient preferences played a role and intranasal fentanyl was offered, but the patient said, no, nah, I'm good? The practice of using intranasal fentanyl also requires buy-in from the nursing staff. In my institution, our nurses love to advocate for intranasal fentanyl, particularly for those patients with fractures and fracture deformity. They like to quickly treat that pain, assure they have better pain uh, control when undergoing imaging studies. And then they feel like they have a build a better trust with that child when they need to start the IV for any sedation that needs to occur in the emergency department. So when we added patients with sickle cell disease with a pain crisis, this was just another patient population that our nurses could advocate for to get their treatment started. 
Now, I will also say from my experience, I have offered patients intranasal fentanyl and I've had them decline because they told me that they had it before and they just really didn't like the sensation of having it sprayed in their nose or they told me that it burned when they received it. Yeah, I agree with you. I've had this experience as well. Some patients will prefer to wait for the intravenous morphine instead. And I think there should be shared decision-making with patients on their preferences with their acknowledgement that it may take a little bit longer to get that IV started. Another issue to consider is how that intranasal fentanyl is incorporated into the emergency department workflows. If the patient is given intranasal fentanyl and then put back into the waiting room, this would not be a valued workflow from the parent or the patient perspective compared to the use of intranasal dosing as a bridge to assure the IV is placed before the next dose of opioid is due for administration. And if you're going by the NHLBI guidelines, you want those in within 30 minutes. Yeah, I totally agree with you. You know, we're, we're trying to give the intranasal fentanyl because we hope that it's going to actually improve pain and get patients home, not because we want to artificially impact the metric that is being measured. And so for all of these reasons, it's difficult to generalize these findings and the use of intranasal fentanyl outside of these academic settings. And it's also possible that many community emergency departments don't have access to intranasal fentanyl or protocols for administering it for sickle cell vasoocclusive pain. This is true. However, adopting intranasal fentanyl administration practices really isn't that hard. And it can be a game changer for community hospitals that might have some difficulty in starting IVs in kids. With only 10 of these academic sites regularly using intranasal fentanyl, it does make you wonder, what are the challenges to adopting it? Well, that was a very satisfying, nerdy discussion with you. Can you comment on the author's conclusions compared to the SGM conclusions? So we do agree with the author's conclusion, but this is a non-randomized retrospective study, and we need more prospective randomized controlled trials to investigate this topic. And what is our SGEM bottom line? Intranasal fentanyl may be helpful for children with sickle cell disease presenting with vasoocclusive pain episodes, but prioritize the timely and adequate administration of parenteral opioids. And can you resolve that case for us? Did we get this young man to his sister's graduation? Well, you decide to give that patient a dose of intranasal fentanyl while he's awaiting the IV access. After IV access is obtained, he receives a few doses of parenteral morphine and tells you that he feels like his pain is much better controlled and he's ready to be discharged from the emergency department. Oh, very nice. Such a happy ending. So let's talk a little bit about the clinical application of this. How do you apply this study clinically? Intranasal fentanyl offers a quick and effective method of providing pain control for children with sickle cell disease presenting with vasoocclusive pain episodes. This is important to keep in mind, especially in situations where IV access is difficult or delayed. If the nurses are struggling to get that IV access, after two tries, sometimes kids will change their mind about using intranasal fentanyl. It was also noted in the study that some kids received only intranasal fentanyl and did not require an IV. That is something I don't usually see, since it typically does take two to three doses of parental opioids to get the pain under control in my experience. Yeah, and while this study suggests that the administration of intranasal fentanyl is associated with increased odds of discharge from the emergency department, there is a wide confidence interval and multiple confounders. 
Now, I still think that given the morning crisis and all of the challenges we're facing in the emergency department, it's not unreasonable to try intranasal fentanyl in hopes of being able to discharge a patient home from the ED. But I definitely think multi-center, prospective, randomized control trials are needed. Yes, we need this study. Oh, and then maybe we can have you back on. I would love that. Now, interestingly, the authors do mention in their discussion that there is a study protocol that was published in 2012 for a randomized controlled trial comparing intranasal fentanyl to IV morphine for severe sickle cell disease-associated pain, but it hasn't been published. Now, we did reach out to the authors of that study since the results seem to be available to see if they would share, but we just haven't heard back yet. So if we do hear something, we will update this episode in the show notes. And I will admit that this next part is pure speculation on my point, but we also know that there is publication bias towards studies with positive findings. So I don't know, is this delay in publication because the study showed a negative result? Yes, I do not know these Irish investigators, but their study only planned to enroll 30 patients and compare pain severity measures over a two-hour time frame. So I think the study has shown that a large-scale investigation is likely needed to assess for the impact of intranasal fentanyl. All right, Amy. And for our our last part, what are you going to tell this patient? I'm so sorry you're uncomfortable, and I want to get an IV and get you some IV pain medications. There's some research that suggests that a dose of medication called fentanyl that is sprayed into your nose will help with pain and also might increase your chances of going home. Let's give it a try as we're trying to get that IV in place. Does that sound okay? A very nice way to tie things up nicely for us. Thank you very much, Dr. Drendel, for joining us on SGMPEDS. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you so much. And before we go... Can you give us the SGM tagline? Remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Talk to everyone next time. <laughs>